Good morning to everyone. It's good to be together today and to open up God's Word. Uh, What a precious thing. And we come to one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 12, um, a very precious text for many of us. So if you'll take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We, we, the author gives the dramatic imagery of a foot race, right? An athletic competition. And he does so in, in such a way with giving us the proper motivations to be able to press on. I mean, from a young child, right? I mean, I remember running the 50-yard dash, right? Is that late elementary or is that junior high? I don't know, but and some did the cross country, right? And maybe some of you have actually ran a marathon. What is that, 26 kilometers? Is that right? Miles, 26 miles. Okay, so a half marathon would be half of that. The Hebrew Christians, of which the writer is writing, were in danger of losing their wartime mentality, right? To having allegiance to Christ, being a soldier of the cross, requires that you maintain that wartime mentality. And, and some of them were, were about to give up, maybe collapse from exhaustion, just tired of the persecution and the ridicule which came from both the Roman, right, pagans, but as well as the Orthodox Jews who denied Christ. We are called to run in a race with endurance, That's a very important phrase. It's actually a theme, a repeated word through the first seven verses or so of this chapter. Perseverance, endurance, that kind of thing. We are called to run in excellence, aren't we? You think of if you went to the golf course, those of you who might golf, and and there's a professional golfer that gets put in your foursome. Boy, you would start thinking every technique, every swing. We have a professional golfer here. Uh, <laughs> one that knows probably more than anyone here. But anyway, what, what do you do? You're just going to play your best. You're going to think of every technique. You're going to give it 110%. Or you're, you're tossing football with a couple of buddies at the park, and the Chargers quarterback comes up and says, hey, can I toss with you guys? It's like, okay, let's see, i got to got to really put the man on, right? I got to I got to do well or or Will Myers comes to the ball field and you're playing with your kid and you know, in other words, you're going to do this with excellence and the writer gives us the greatest motivation, not just those human figures, but fixing our eyes on Jesus. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says from morning and evening. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and unto Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us to regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates to us, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. And you will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. He goes on. All of these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance in looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we, Satan tells us that we are nothing, 
but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, that it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and his merits that saves you. So what he's saying there is uh, the enemy wants to turn our attention away from Christ, right? To unto anything that would distract us, unto anything, and especially looking to yourself would be a big distraction. So let's read the, the text. I'm going to read the first three verses. We're not going to get through the first three verses, but it is a unit. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father in heaven, we do come as a needy people. We, Many of us are weary, even this very day. Lord, we need to fix our eyes on our Savior we need to be reminded that we are in not a sprint, we're not in a, a, an afternoon stroll, we're in a lifelong marathon, and that we must persevere unto the end. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding into this text, even this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's remember the context. We, um, I'll say more about some of the structure, but even just in recent weeks, in, in Hebrews 11, he's been listing all these heroes of the faith, right? In the hall of faith. And he he's, you know, starts with Abel, goes to Noah, and just all the way down. Finally, in verse 32, he just starts rapid fire. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the other ones. And these are the heroes of the faith that, that it conquered kingdoms that quench fire, But then in verse 35, remember it says, and but others. Others were tortured. So 32 to 35 were the victors that God gave great victory at at the works of their hands. But then in verse 35, it says, others were tortured. Physical pain, physical torment. And the word, the Greek word here, I told you, is where we get the word tambourine or a drum, where you stretch a skin out on a rack. And what they would do is stretch the person out on that and beat them with clubs to kill them. I told you the story um, of the 90-year-old scribe that would not deny Christ and he would not eat pork because it was prohibited And he could have been released. And then the seven brothers that were killed in front of their mother, one after the other, tortured in this way. It goes on to say that some were stoned, sawn in two. They wore sheepskins, thinking of Elijah and Elisha. And, and, And then he just says they were destitute, being in short supply. The Christian life is no guarantee that it's going to be healthy and wealthy, right? That you're going to have all these things. Sorry, Joel. Olstein. Um, 
<laughs> I'd rather rely on the Bible than uh, his word. Afflicted and ill-treated, mistreated. So on the one hand, you have these, these great heroes of which God gave them great success. But on the other hand, and probably we would say more commonly, ill-treated, afflicted, tortured. And so the application there really was that faith does not imply immunity from persecution, suffering, or even death. Now, I want to remind you as we go back even further, just turn back to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 18 ended that unit that began back at the end of chapter 4 on the high priestly work of Christ. In verse 19, it's a transitional paragraph here. And he says, Therefore, since we have this confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider to put the mental effort into how to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds, not forsaking this assembling. And so there's these exhortations to hold fast, to press on, don't give up. But then the author says, let me give an illustration of this. Let me just give you a catalog of Old Testament history in the saints and how they triumphed. And so chapter 11, really, you could look at it as a parenthesis. We spent nearly six months in it um, looking at these examples. And then really, as we come to chapter 12 and verse 1, he picks up where the exhortation left off. So that's why I wanted to show you that in chapter 10. He, he's, he's firing away with exhortations, horatory subjunctives in the original, which which has the idea of the, the author includes himself. Let us do this together. And it has the fourth of, force of a command. And then he gives that illustration, chapter 11, and then he comes back to this beautiful thing and gives us the ultimate example. Don't go be like Moses. Don't be like Noah. Don't be like Abraham so much. But the ultimate example is what? Christ. Fixing our eyes on Christ. So in a sense, he's... He's really wrapping up the argument of chapter 11 in these first couple of verses of chapter 12. Now the structure of of the two verses, or three verses, that we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks um, is such to where towards the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance, that's the main clause, okay? That's the main verb that's there. And then there's participle phrases that that modify that. And then at the beginning of verse 3, where it says, for consider him, that is an imperative, that is a command. And we'll unpack that next week when we get to it. Also, the subjects of the verbs are no longer the heroes of faith, right? Moses and Abraham, and they, they did all of this. It now becomes first person. Let us, we, together, or second person, which is more common up through all the way through verse 13, you, you, you. So it's very pointed. So we're going to look at this under two points. The third point I'm not going to be able to, to get, get to. That'll be next week. But um, verse 1, run the race of the Christian life with endurance. 
And verse 2a, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And next week we'll take up the rest of verse 2 and verse 3. So first of all, the Christian life is, is portrayed as a race, isn't it? It's portrayed as a race, the life of faith. We're to run this race with endurance. The use of athletic metaphors is very common in the Bible and especially the New Testament. Um, The wrestling, the fighting, warfare, Ephesians 6, right? Farming, 1 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 2. Um, Several different examples like this. An athletic contest. Are great, were, of, were of great importance in the ancient world. The Olympics in Greece, it was a big deal. And in Rome, it was a huge deal. The games and the arenas, they were filled with pomp and ceremony, much like they still are today, right? At least here in the, the U.S. But, but this was a big deal. And so he uses this metaphor of a race. Now, notice the very first word there is therefore. It's not the typical word that we see commonly throughout the New Testament. This is a stronger word. This word only occurs twice in the New Testament. And it's, it's a strong conjunction. It, you might think of it as an emphatic relation to the end of chapter 11, like linking these, the first couple of verses with the last few verses of that chapter we have a great cloud of witnesses, he says. What, a, what an encouragement. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, all the heroes of the faith, those are ours. We can look back to, we can look at their testimonies, their lives, how they were faithful unto the end. And they are given to the church. Now notice that since we have... That might look familiar back in chapter 4 and verse 1 where he says, since we have such a great high priest, since we have this implication, let us draw near with boldness to the throne of grace. I just read in 1019, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, let us draw near with a sincere heart, holding fast to our confession and not forsaking the assembling. And here, since we have this cloud of witnesses what are we to do run 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 the race of the christian life with endurance and and you think of this cloud of witnesses uh, that's so great it's it's focusing on the the quality of these witnesses now many um from all the way calvin and even earlier Picture the imagery of, of we're in a stadium, right? Because these games would take place in a stadium. And the stands would go up. And, you know, you've got Abraham over here. And, and they're up there like, they're like in the cheering section, right? Cheering Nick on and, and cheering us all on, right? But that, I think there's a sense in which that could be there. But I think that's kind of missing the point. The root word that is used here is witnesses, Right? Verse 39, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. In verse 2 of chapter 11, for by it men of old gained approval. They gained approval by their testimony. And so the metaphor refers somewhat to a great amphitheater, an arena, and the runners running together. Um, but they're not spectators as much as they are testifiers to the faithfulness of God. 
It's like Abel reminding us there's only one true sacrifice, not the grain offering, the blood sacrifice. Abraham reminding us the promises of God are true. Cling to those. Moses reminding us the emptiness of the world and and all of its riches. And so you see here, there's a testimony, right? But it's really just their past testimony. It's not like they're there presently cheering us on. They're not live witnesses of the event as we, the, uh, um, the contestants together with the author and the members of his flock, uh, they have this mutual faith, but they are not live witnesses as much as by their testimony, such as Abel, you know, he says, actually later in chapter 12, the blood of Abel does what? Still speaks, right? So they are witnesses in the sense that they continue to testify. So we have this cloud of witnesses, all these heroes throughout church history that continue to speak even think of church history as we know it i love church history so many examples could be given jonathan edwards towards the end of his life the greatest theologian america's ever had in the 1700s his church kicked him out near the end of his life you know why he said if we're gonna we're we're gonna have the lord's table here shortly they would just give the lord's table to unbelievers unbelievers alike the church would And Edwards finally put his foot down and said, that's inappropriate. This is reserved for only true believers. And they kicked him out. He spent the last few years of his life ministering to Indians. The greatest theologian America's ever known. Many recognize him as that. Charles Spurgeon, at the end of his life, the Baptist Union in the 1890s and late 1880s even, And England was becoming more and more liberal, denying the fundamentals of the faith. And he wrote a lot against that and remained strong. And some think it's that weariness of standing up for the truth that put him to an early death at the age of 56. Or how about this, the tale of the two Margarets, these Scottish martyrs. They were Scottish covenanters. And there was a two Margarets, Margaret Wilson, who was a mere teenager, and Margaret McLaughlin, and they were tied to a post out in the ocean water, not where it's really deep, but where the tide would come in and eventually would drown them. And why were they tied there? It was very simply that all they had to do was give allegiance and swear an oath declaring James the seventh is the head of the church, the king of Scotland at that time. That's all you got to do. Just say, he's the head of the church. And so the story goes where the persecutors come out to Margaret Wilson, this young teenager, and says, look, all you have to do is just pray a prayer to James, and we'll untie you and let you go. And she would not. She prayed to God. She sang psalms, all in defiance to their persecutors. They shoved her down lower as she's tied to the post, and the waves were coming in, and of course, they drowned. Such examples of perseverance should motivate us to not compromise, to stay on course in the Christian life. Next, we run this marathon with endurance. Here's that main clause there at the end of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. It says the force of a command, the writer is including himself here. 
And notice the word run. It's trexo in the original. Even the word has the idea of something fast, right? Um, and and it, it's to run with an emphasis on relative speed in contrast to walking. So notice this is not an afternoon stroll, right? It's, it's, it's not a walk. It's not a crawl. It's none of that. It's not even a brisk power walk, but it's running with speed and consistency. It's, you might remember the prodigal son story. He goes away. He comes back. He, he's repentant. The father's looking out. Is, is my son coming home? And finally that day comes where he sees the son afar off. This is the verb that's used. He trexoed to his son. He didn't just wait for him. He ran to his son and embraced him because he loved him. So run with endurance. The what? The race. Now this race just sounds a little milder than what the word really means. It, it means a contest. You might think of a boxing match or a wrestling match. It's, a, it's an athletic competition. It, it communicates the idea of a huge endeavor. And the prolonged nature of this race is shown by the author using the present tense. Let us keep on running, right? It's not one sprint and then take a break and rest. It's keep on running in the Christian life. It's a long distance race requiring resolute determination if you're in Christ. Of course, we'll get to verse 2, but the key is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, was read by Jamil, uses this imagery as well here. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And he goes on to say, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. That word competes is agonizo. It's where we get the word agonize, right? This is an intense competition says i box in such a way not beating the air but i discipline my body and i make it my slave so that after i preach to others i myself would not be a castaway in the old king james or disqualified so how are we to run we're to run not stroll we're, we're, we're engaged in a competition, as it were. We can call it a race, but it's an intense competition. But how are we to run? With endurance. With endurance. With patience. With perseverance. Not with impatience. Not with doubt. Not with despair. But with endurance. And as I said, both the noun and the verb occur in verses 1, 2, and 3, and 7. So it's a repeated theme as we see even Jesus himself for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross. We're to run the race with endurance. Christ endured the cross. Which is more difficult? The cross. He's our supreme par excellence example, as it were. And this is a long-distance marathon, not a sprint. Remember, Jesus tells the parable of the soils in all three of the synoptic Gospels and in Luke 8, 
He says, but the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. They hold it fast and they bear fruit with what? Perseverance, with endurance. In Matthew 10, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. Now, the difference between the 1 Corinthians 9 passage that I mentioned and this passage is that 1 Corinthians 9 kind of gives the idea of run in such a way that you may win, which implies what? Defeating others. Here, that's not the thrust of it. The, the, the thrust of it is to complete the race successfully, right? Complete it successfully. And, and it's been marked out for us, the race that is set before us, right? It's already been planned. It's marked out for us. There must be a firm resolve not to drop out of the contest, but to exert every effort to cross the finish line, despite, no matter how hard, the hardship and exhaustion becomes. We must run to finish the race. There was once a man, uh, Ak. Hari that ran in the 1968 Olympics representing Tanzania there in East Africa. And Akahari injured himself in the competition, and as a result, he finished the race an hour behind the gold medal winner. After he crossed the finish line, a reporter came to him and said, why didn't you just retire from the race since you had no chance of winning? Akahari looked confused at the reporter's question, and after a pause, he said, My country did not send me to Mexico City to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. How much more for us who are in Christ? We can't just cower and quit. We've got to press on. And one of the means by which we press on is one another, is the means of grace, is the encouragement. Keep running, Andrew. Don't stop. But Kurt... I want to just take a break. No, keep running. Come on, lock arms with me. I'll help you. Right? That we need each other to press on in this race. The Apostle Paul experienced that same satisfaction at the very end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, the last chapter he ever penned out of all the books of the Bible. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is therefore in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed his appearing. So we must press on. But notice this, uh, the end of verse 1 there, the race that is set before us. There's a determined course that we're to stay on, a, a prescribed path, you might think of it, for each of us. Think of a race, perhaps it was an obstacle course, right? Where you've got 12 different obstacles and turns through the woods and all of that. And, and how easy it would be to, to miss a turn and to end up turning at the wrong place. That would be a terrible thing. And, and we must be careful that we're not taking wrong turns, some will wake up and have that, in that day of judgment and be reminded that they were on the wrong course. He says, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide 
and the way is broad that leads to destruction, but there are many who enter through it. This is why we need endurance. This is why we need staying power to never give up, to stay on the course that is set before us and not to make our own course, not to make our own shortcuts, but to stay on the course that is set before us. And one of the ways that we do that, as we'll get to verse 2 in a moment, is what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. If we have Him in view, we won't be diverted and, and, and distracted to get off the course. John Piper says, don't take your eternal security for granted. Well, there's another aspect of this race in verse 1 before we move to verse 2. We have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Cast off anything that would hinder your running the race with excellence. Cast it off. Get rid of it. As, as we have the surge of adrenaline from scanning the cloud of witnesses and hearing their testimonies, and we're about to engage in this race, we must think, what weights do I have that I can get rid of so that I can run well? Lay it aside. Remember when Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 7? And, 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 and what does it say? It says in verse 58, right near the end, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul and began stoning Stephen. So the Apostle Paul, before he's converted, is there. They're taking off their outer garments and laying it by the feet of Paul. That's the idea of laying aside. We're to lay aside encumbrances and weights. This first one, I think, can even be legitimate things that, that drag us down. Some that are even good and permissible that we wouldn't call necessarily a sin. But if it weighs you down spiritually, it could be a friendship. A poisonous gossip friend that just every time you talk to him, you're, you're like, you're just feeling worn out. Maybe it's some pleasure. Maybe it's wasted time on social media. Is it a sin to look at Instagram or Facebook? No, it's not a sin. But is it profitable if I'm spending hours a day? Video games, so many just spend hours a day on that mindless hours of watching tv you fill in the blank all of these distractions the word here just occurs only here it's it's anything that hinders or prevents the nas is this encumbrance this encumbrance my wife and i have been playing pickleball some of you may know what that game is i didn't know what it was a couple years ago and she'll say, honey, can you meet me at the court on the way home? And I'm like, I'm not really dressed completely for it, or I'm wearing the wrong type of clothes. I would beat her more often if I did. But when I get there, I'm taking out my keys, my iPhone, every weight that I can, right? Maybe even taking off an outer garment to just wear a T-shirt. I'm laying aside that I might engage in that well, so we must discipline ourselves, laying aside every weight. It's so important that we do this. The runners in that day, in the first century, ran in a stadium nearly naked. Some would say absolutely naked. They would take off every 
outer garment in order that they may win. Even modern athletes, you see a boxing match. I haven't seen one in a while, but they're wearing the big outer garment that has, you know, pressure or whatever, the crusher or whatever the name is. Here he comes, he's wearing his sweats. Well, what happens? Gets to the ring, all that stuff starts to come off, right? And that's the idea, laying it aside before the competition. Did you know some runners and swimmers would shave all of their body hair that they might be just a little bit faster? It's amazing. In these first centuries, Christians had a temptation to go back to the Jewish synagogue, to turn away from Christ. And fear was making them turn away from the faith and the circumstances were hindering them from living with a certain conviction of truth. Even as he said back in chapter 6, he warned them that, that some of you are becoming sluggish in the race. Here, every encumbrance, handicaps, even you might think of doubts and pride and sloth and laziness and all of these types of things need to be stripped off. But then he says, but also every sin that entangles us. The ESV has clinged so closely. I like the word entangled much better, the translation of this Greek word, and the NAS has. And so he says here, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. That's so close to us, as the ESV would say. We must flee temptation. We must see sin as a deadly enemy and to not run to it. And this probably has the idea of a besetting sin, a certain sin that maybe you are prone to. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's pleasure. It could be any number of things. What is your besetting sin? I mean, I think for many men, it might be something sensual or, or, or sexual, but not all men, right? It could be a temptation to something else. Maybe it's a fear of man. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's jealousy. You know, whatever it might be, overindulgence. It could be any number of things. But it's something that easily entangles you and you and you and me. And we need to know what that is so that we can run well. Even being reminded of past sins that maybe we engaged in that when we were serving the devil and and, and sometimes you might go to a certain place and you, there's a smell. You remember before you were in Christ, that smell caused me to stumble. Or maybe it's listening to certain music or a certain band or something like that. It kind of takes you back to those days. We need to lay all of that aside. Well, moving on, let's go to verse 2. A, briefly, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Athletes in a race need to keep their eyes fixed on a goal, right? There needs to be a goal, finish line, that tape, whatever. It's got to be a goal that you are running towards. And the appeal of our author is that he wants us to have a concentrated focus. Not just a, you know, like whatever, take it or leave it. Concentrated. Keeping your eyes on the finish line. This will enable us to do several things. One is running straight, right? You keep your eyes on an object and you will go straight. 
fixing our eyes. The, 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 the word that's used here is the idea of directing your attention away from distractions and unto the one thing. Fixing our eyes. So ignoring distractions, fixing our gaze on the goal for the prize. John Owen in his wonderful work, Puritan work on the glory of Christ, says this, a constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and call our spiritual lives to flourish and to thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now, the more spiritual and the more heavenly will be the state of our souls. We need to have eyes, as it were, only for Jesus. When it comes to females, half the population, and I mean real females, not pretend females, um, the, you know what I mean by that, I think, but anyway, um, I have eyes only for my wife. She's the only one. And when it comes to Christianity, our eyes need to be only for Christ, who set His love on us even when He was suffering on the cross. The supreme encouragement to persevere comes from Jesus Christ. The, the word that's used here, fixing our eyes on Jesus, calls our attention to His humanity and His suffering. Right? Christ is Messiah, but Jesus, the one who suffered, the one that endured the cross, keep your eyes on Him. And this is again a present tense. This is not just look to Jesus and now just remember what He looked like and keep running. No, keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. Jonathan Edwards remarked beautifully concerning this, that we are to take notice of Christ's excellence, which is as a feast. In 1954, a memorable event occurred in the Empire Games in Vancouver, where the eyes of the world were fixed on two men, Roger Bannister and John Landy, two of the fastest milers in the world at that time. It was being called the Miracle Mile, this race. And as the world was waiting to see the first sub-four-minute race ever, it lived up to its expectations. And so, as they set out to race, Landy quickly took the lead over the first few laps, but he made one big mistake that he could not recover. He just took a brief moment to look over his shoulder to see where Bannister was. And at that time, he passed him, and he could not recover. Land, Landy's fatal lapse of concentration was pictured of what, is, is a picture of what the writer is saying. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, blocking out other distractions. Charles Spurgeon gives the illustration of a plowboy, and how can he plow straight? You see the tree at the yonder end of the opposite of the field? Keep your eyes on that and you will plow straight. We need to keep our eyes on Christ, brethren. We can't go out of our lanes. We don't want to be disqualified. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary, says, Jesus fulfilled all of God's promises to all who believe, giving faith a perfect basis for his high priestly work. His faith is qualitatively not simply quantitatively greater than all the examples of the Old Testament covered in chapter 11. Therefore, Christians have the most wonderful and powerful incentive 
for persevering in the faith. Next, under this point, Jesus is the foremost example of faithful endurance. And that's right there, you see it, the author and the perfecter. And we've already seen this language back in chapter 2. The author has already used it where it focused on the sufferings of Christ. But here, it's that he is an example. He's, He's the author. He's the champion, the word can be translated. He's the forerunner. He's the one that goes before us. Perfectly trusting God, he won the victory. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. He despised the shame and he has sat down victoriously at the right hand of the throne of God. A place of honor, a place of prestige. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor, died about 200 years ago. Um, died 29 years old, only seven years in the ministry. But he said, for every time you look at yourself, your own sinfulness, your own weakness, take ten looks to Christ. For every one look to yourself. We sing that song in Christ alone. From life's first breath, first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Jesus endured the cross for us. Think of how much more difficult it would be to endure the cross than to run the race that it's already been set before us with all of the motives and the motivations of fixing our eyes on our Savior. Despising the shame, it says, there's nothing more disgraceful that could ever happen to any man than public crucifixion, stripped naked, and something that was reserved for criminals and the lowest of the low classes. A couple of thoughts of application as we wrap up. Consider the loneliness of Jesus. He had during his earthly course, the race that he ran, the loneliness of his disciples falling asleep, at the garden, the, the dullness of the disciples, not quite getting it completely, right? We run together as brothers and sisters, right? We're, we're in the race together. He ran alone, for he came to do what no one else could ever achieve. Secondly, don't quit until you cross the finish line. The finish line may come differently for each one of us. It may come in our 90s. It may come... In our 20s, we don't know. And there's no denying that this marathon is hard. The Christian life is hard. We'll be tempted to grow weary, be tempted to lose heart. We get tired when part of the race is uphill and it's extra hard and we're trying to run. There, There seems to be no end in sight. Then you add the dynamics of weather, heat waves, and cold and rain and all of this kind of kind of things that that could hinder us the discouragement and weariness that can come and and some want to faint some want to get want to give up and what a blessing it is that when 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 a brother or a sister is feeling that way for another sister to go to her and say i know it's hard and i know it's weary And this season, six months ago, I was weary, but somebody came to me and encouraged me, and it was like adrenaline in my soul so I could press on. We need to do that. 
for one another. To not be lazy. To, to not be prone to losing heart. To not giving in to being dull and sluggish and slow, but excelling. We need to ask ourselves today, are you running or are you just coasting? You're going to be running this race. You'll have rest at the end of the race. Go back to chapter 4. You probably forgot all about it, but it's a beautiful imagery. Let us fear that if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. He says in verse 9, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from us. We will have that day of rest after we cross the finish line. And then if you're outside of Christ, you can't fix your eyes on on Jesus because what, what the author is saying is those of us who are Christians, who know that our sins have been paid for on the cross, He endured the cross, He paid for all of my sins, it's a delight to fix your eyes on Jesus. But if you're outside of Christ, what does it say? Like He's got eyes as a flame of fire. He can see right through you. He sees your sin. He sees your guilt. He sees that you, you've, you've rebelled to the triune God and you will answer to Him in judgment. But it doesn't have to be that way. Confess that you're a sinner. Run to Christ, repenting of your sins, looking to Christ, and He will save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for this text. I pray that You would give us steadfastness as Your people. That You would encourage us in this race, even with this cloud of witnesses, even with the admonition to lay aside weights and sins that we may run well. We thank you for the truth of your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen.